Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are discussing the dark history of the Washtas and the Ozarks and their connections. But first, we want to remind you that the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or about any other podcast platform. So many people may be wondering why we're discussing an area outside of the Ozarks proper. Why are we talking about spaces outside of the geological lines of the Ozarks? Well, maybe the Ozarks are just a state of mind. Uh, but seriously, there are a lot more things that go into a region than just geology, uh, particularly when people are involved. And consequently, the lines and borders are a bit more fuzzy with the connections and influences related to the Ozarks being quite significant. We will return to the Washtas and the Ozarks, but first we want to invite you to like, follow, and subscribe to Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, as well as your favorite podcast platform. We also invite you to become a Dark Ozarks subscriber on Facebook. On the Dark Ozarks Facebook page, click subscribe, have your login information ready, and join Dark Ozarks behind the scenes for only $4.99 per month. Your $4.99 per month subscription allows you to come with us on paranormal investigations, deep dive research, and topics too controversial for public view. The next 100 subscribers will be entered in the drawing for a free Dark Ozarks t-shirt and an exclusive signed first-run copy of the book Dark Ozarks The Spooklight. Subscribe today to be entered in the drawing. And now you can get Dark Ozarks t-shirts for sale at darkozarts.com and ParanormalScienceLab.com. We encourage you to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online, on Facebook and at the website, alwaysbuyingbooks.com for all of your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal history and more. Not to mention, the building is haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's best brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and great food in a historical building with a noir past. And yes, their building is also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. So the Washita Mountains in uh, Southwest Arkansas and uh, Southeastern Oklahoma are yes. neighbors our Ozark neighbors, the Washita's, are a mountain range that is distinct from the Ozarks. It is also separated, but from the Ozarks by the Arkansas River and the Arkansas River Valley. But culturally, there's a great deal of crossover. There is, and events in one affected events in the other. So it just made sense to understand everything that shaped our region. 
something that really jumped out to me in research for this episode is that the Washita's and the Ozarks together are classified as the U.S. interior highlands. And we tend to get, I think, tunnel vision about our regions and our region-specific areas. But if you were outside of the United States, for example, and was doing research on and came across the term U.S. interior highlands, to me, there's a resonating quality there. I, I live in the U.S. interior highlands, and even just for me reading that, I get very reinterested, I suppose, uh, reinvigorated about the fact that we have this very unique space that does act differently, does stand differently than other parts of the United States, even parts that are very closely adjacent. I agree. And it also, I think, is, if nothing else, in an allegorical sense, analogous to the individuality of the culture of the region. There, there's a great deal of crossover. And then there are very unique things in both regions. We'll get more into this later, but I do believe that something that informs the the, the substrate of the Washita's is the Caddo, the Caddo people, peoples, yes. which also contributed to the naming of the Washita's and the, in, in much the same way that the Osage contributed as, a, as what I would classify as a substrate culture and leaving their mark in, in unique ways, even if we didn't necessarily have the, the words for it, but leaving the, the mark, their mark, <clears throat> in what was their summer hunting land, which was essentially the Missouri Ozarks. These are factors that really come together. And it is quite possible that uh, it was the, the Caddo peoples whom Europeans first encountered in the Ozarks. That, that's true, as far back as the 1540s. It is, the uh, DeSoto's marching through the interior highlands and something that it does appear that we have much more documented evidence of is DeSoto in the Washita's, whereas DeSoto in the Ozarks tends to be a little bit fuzzier. That's true. There, there are there are indications that he made it into the Ozarks, but it's pretty well confirmed that he was in the Washita's. So, and I, I for one, and I, I've been wanting to see Mount Magazine forever. The highest natural point in the Washita's is Mount Magazine at two thousand seven hundred and fifty-three feet. I think I follow them on social media, and I want to go, but. It's uh, <laughs> unbelievably beautiful, beautiful, beautiful space, beautiful forest region, and very evocative, both in terms of its, of its regular history, evocative in terms of its culture, in some cases, its cryptids, as well as some very interesting ghost lore all the way around. 
I, th I think one thing that struck me as well is that we often talk about the Ozarks having been a very rugged area and isolated with scattered populations for a long time. But the Washita's actually were even less populated than the adjacent Arkansas Ozarks. And so you have much more of that threshold space feeling as well as almost literally that you had fewer people around. And so things that happened, it's almost as if they took on a larger sense of folklore than maybe they would have in a more populated area. I think that is fair. And there's there are things about the Wachita's that really stand out. Uh, for one, there's a number of plants that are endemic to the Wachita's. And it's very, it, it has its own personality in terms of flora. And yeah. as well as just the geological space. And for the for individuals who speculate in terms of earth, earth energy or earth magic, etc. The fact that you have such a unique space, such a unique mountain range does contribute to speculation in terms of what might essentially be inherently conjured from the mountains themselves. True. And the, that lore, that idea goes back beyond the settlers to the native populations as well. They do. They do. And lots of, a lot of really unique folklore. And I would say in some cases, the both sections of interior Highland are really extraordinarily beautiful in terms of their wildness. There is a sudden ruggedness to the Washita's that is hard to beat. It is. It is. It's a. It's a beautiful space. It's been a number. It's been several years since I've been down there, but I. I do enjoy it. I do recall one camping trip down there that, with the most rain I think I was ever in. Manage, we managed to keep a campfire going, mainly to Alex's credit. So that was a trip that I won't forget. It left an impression. One, one of the articles that we that uh, we had for research actually came from Hot Springs newspaper, referencing ghost places in the Washtenaws, and I I found it very interesting. I, I liked that turn of phrase. And it wasn't, it's not necessarily for a spirit per se, but for the place and particularly lone standing chimneys. And apparently there are quite a few in that region. I mean, and that you, you come across some in the Ozarks. There's, there's one along I-44 between Joplin and, and Springfield that is pretty prominent if you pay attention on the south side of the road. And in researching that one, it is a standing chimney from a house that was burned in the Civil War. And it's still there 160 years later. And the other story that I know of that relates to that is outside of Carthage, Missouri, there's a, a road, a county road that 
and it's an example of urban legend and folklore developing very rapidly and changing. Over the course of about the last 15 to 20 years, kids have started referring to this road as the witch's road. And it centers around a place where there are two chimneys. Now there are these tales that witches lived there and witchcraft went on and that, all of that. But it wasn't. It was a farm. It was called Colebrook. And then during the Depression in the early days of motoring, it was a summer motor camp. Over time, they moved away. The houses fell down, but the chimneys are still there. There is something weirdly evocative about a, a lone standing chimney. It can be a bit eerie, to say the least. And perhaps simply because it denotes that there used to be something there. That it, you know, and, when, and as longing for what that story is. <laughs> yes, and wondering, and in this particular article is is interesting because it details a haunting that is associated ghost places scattered throughout the Washita's from uh, hotsr.com hot springs and referencing stories told by local historian and journalist John J. Archibald. And in short, someone takes a piece of the fireplace mm-hmm. as, a, as a souvenir, takes it home with them, and poltergeist activity begins to develop in the home around the stone. It, it, it makes me think of a couple of things. One is the tales that we've talked about previously, things like buttery sprites and so forth, of elementals connected to a home, and particularly the hearth or or cooking in some fashion. And another is actually experience I had on Quapaw land, investigating, and there's actually not far from Goatman's Holler, an area where years ago some murder victims were found. And tribal elders made the point of saying that they considered everything there potentially either haunted or, in essence, having an attachment. So they, they warned everyone, don't take anything, including a pebble, a leaf, anything. Don't disturb anything because it may have something connected to it. That is... Pretty good advice. Mm-hmm. It is. But this is the first time I've, I've heard a tale connected to a chimney stone, per se. And it does make you wonder how that necessarily comes about. But at the very least, you know that the chimneys created during this time, an enormous amount of effort was put into making them and uh, to crafting them. This is a lot of a lot of labor, a lot of someone's personal effort and hardship going into creating this. And it is associated with, it's the hearth. Exactly. Which in European folklore, the hearth is the center of magic in the home. And that, and that makes sense to me. I, I do like one quotation in the article that says, I haven't seen another part of the country that leaves fireplaces alone, 
but we not only leave them alone, we also take care of them. We want them to be something that's preserved. And that makes sense that if there, if there are elementals or a hint of hearth magic, that it should be cared for or at least preserved. And from what I can tell, the, the, there is a happy conclusion to this story. The uh, people in question take the stone back and put it back where they found it. And the haunting dissipate, or the poltergeist activity dissipates. That's that's true. And there's a there's a. It reminds me there's a ghost town in California that starts with a B, and it just the name just escaped me. I hadn't thought about this in quite a while. Where there is a tradition of people will take souvenirs and then them bringing them back. It's a it's a, a state park now and rangers will say people will actually mail rocks or whatever they may have taken back because they've started having bad luck or things happening and they've decided it's connected to them taking that item and so they will actually mail it back to the park um speaking of ghost towns and not ghost towns but i'm going to pivot momentarily to cripple creek colorado Oh, I love Cripple Creek. I, along with my family, got to stay in Cripple Creek once. The, we did not go to the Imperial Hotel. I was eight years old. I was quite disappointed there were no Imperial Stormtroopers at the Imperial Hotel. <laughs> because I was eight. But the hotel that we ultimately ended up staying at was a it had originally been a schoolhouse. Oh, neat. And the room that we were staying in was a, had originally been a classroom. Oh, neat. And I remember looking out the windows. It was, the room itself was on the northwest corner of the building, second floor, looking out over the desolate mining mountains. And we took several photos in inside the room. And when we got one of the photos back, it had a very interesting space within the photo. White and blue vaporous figure oh, really? in the photo. Of course, this was 1987, summer of 1987. And you know, you've sent film in to be developed that sort of thing and i remember us looking at it and just going hmm, that's interesting definitely <laughs> i should i should say i might be able to i might be able to find that photo but i would and, i would love to see that and of course it might just be uh you know light in the in the in the film it could be just an odd aberration but it was the only photo on that roll that had anything weird on it. Interesting. Well, and now you can you can look back at it with the benefit of years and investigations and look at whether or not you think it is still anomalous or not when you see it. So when you do, exactly. So did not, did not have that kind of experience at Cripple Creek, but I, I do recall we rode the train. Nice. And 
decide, and I, I remember thinking, narrow gauge trains on the side of a mountain, I'll, 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 I'll take my train on flat ground. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the treacherousness of the Rockies. I, I grew up going on vacation to the Rockies. It's an amazing, no matter what state you're in, it's it's phenomenal. They are. That being said, I like my trees. So <laughs> I I do too. I do too. Hills and hollers. <laughs> Along with that, now a part, an important part of the Washita region is actually just outside the Washita region, which is in the area of Texarkana and yeah. intersection point of three state lines, Arkansas, Texas, and Louisiana. And not very far from Texarkana is Falk, Falk, Arkansas, and the Falk monster. Yes. And the Falk monster has contributed quite a bit to pop culture ideas of cryptids and Bigfoot in particular. And it would be easy to relegate it to a film that is sort of trope, except for the fact that it's based on real accounts. It is, it is. And specifically we're talking about the Legend of Boggy Creek, which was created by Charles B. Pierce, auteur and essentially independent filmmaker. And Legend of Boggy Creek came out in the early 1970s and in many ways changed the landscape of perception on the subject in ways that many people now would not necessarily realize, but it was a very low budget film that did quite well in the box office. It did. And I, I think you have to look in terms of the subject, the really the, the term Bigfoot started becoming popular in the 50s with some newspaper accounts. Uh, previously, generally, these kind of cryptid accounts were referred to as wild men, etc. But California newspaper coined that term and it stuck, kind of like flying saucer got, you know, became stuck in, in pop culture from one account. Then you have was it 68, 67, 68, the, the Gimlin-Patterson film out of the Northwest, the famous film of a Bigfoot looking back over his shoulder. And we're still debating to this day whether or not it's real. Then that really, I think, shaped the popular idea of what is Bigfoot, that eight seconds of film or whatever, until Legend of Boggy Creek. And something that I'm always interested in when we're talking about cryptids is looking for, and, and Bigfoot type cryptids in particular, is looking for contemporary references that match the description before Bigfoot entered into pop culture in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. To me, that is that brings a very interesting 
dynamic to the question because once, say for example, and, and it's the same with UFO sightings prior to 1947 with Roswell. If you can find documented sightings that match the descriptions later, but they are credibly prior to the phenomena entering into pop culture, the human mind is uniquely susceptible to persuasion and pop culture in some, you know, an, a, a phenomena or an idea being inserted and repeated over and over and over really gives a, a strong likelihood that if someone sees something they don't understand, their mind will fill in around it based on their pop culture references. Um, yes. And so for, and, and quite frankly, post Roswell, post the newspaper articles and coverage of Roswell, but then taking it steps further after the original day the earth stood still, after many of us growing up in and drenched in the lore of the X-Files in the 90s, et cetera. There, there's a lot that is difficult for, for most people to separate fact from fiction in that regard. But it's one of the reasons why the uh, Renaissance era uh, Nuremberg, Germany references to some sort of experience in the sky and they're describing things that sound remarkably like UFO sightings is yeah. really, really fascinating to me. In this case, jumping over to uh, the Falk River Monster, we have, for example, sightings dating from 1908, 1932, 1946, uh, 1955, that all provide a, a credible substrate to the fact that, that people were seeing something, they were experiencing something, and we can go over them, but they were doing so bereft of any cultural contamination of outside ideas. Right. You could say that they, it, they were in the vacuum. They weren't being they weren't being influenced by a lot of other input. Now we do have to say that there there were other accounts of similar cryptids in our general region in the Ozarks, including the Arkansas Wild Man, which is a northeastern Arkansas, the Blue Man, which was in southern Missouri, Momo later, a little further north, as well as just a sundry experiences of people that did not end up with a monster with a name. So they, again, none of them prior to that time were subject to the suggestion of pop culture. So I think, I do think that's very important. And there were a lot of similarities in these reports from 1908 forwards. And there when were. You, when you look at them, it, it seems fairly, you feel fairly confident that people over time were seeing the same type of creature. And it's 1908 near Arkansas. Woman is reported to have seen a creature fitting the description of the Falcon monster when she was 10 years old. In 1932, Jonesville, man sees a hairy man-like animal from his porch. It quickly moved out toward the fence on the property and disappeared into the woods. 1946, 
woman sees a strange animal in the field by her house. According to the local sheriff, she said, quote, it looked kind of like a man and walked like a man, but she didn't think that it was a man. And that's from the Texarkana Gazette. 1955 and then we have three sightings in 1955 that were documented man sees a large hairy ape-like creature near his house on boggy creek he shot at it 15 times with a rifle but apparently missed also two adult residents see a hairy man-like creature across the road one evening while driving near their home they noted that quote it walked like a man but was too hairy to be a man and in Mercer Bayou, experienced hunter-trapper sees a large gorilla-like creature while fishing in a river. The creature appeared to be washing its hands before it walked off on two legs into the trees. And, and a lot of these people are people who were very familiar with the area, with the wildlife there, which is also interesting. Then you layer on that, the movie is based on another account real account of the ford family it is and i just i also want to take a moment we're going to talk about charles b pierce as well but i want to take a moment to recommend watching legend of boggy creek it is surprisingly very very beautiful it is and really it holds up over time well uh, as a piece of art and really captures the sense of place and i think that we can we can thank charles b pierce for doing much more than the casual observer might realize in terms of shaping public consciousness and public in some cases awareness or fear both in terms of Boggy Creek as well. We'll get to this a little bit later, but in terms of the slasher horror genre, which started with some Texarkana murders in 1946 that were quite gruesome. So it's, it is a, a very interesting path that you have a, an unsung artist, filmmaker in Arkansas who from the outside looking in inexplicably impacts a great deal of public of our consciousness, both in terms of cryptozoology, the horror flasher genre of, of film, and in some cases, great Westerns as well, all coming out of this corner of the interior highlands, Washita slash Ozarks. Yes, certainly an area that you don't associate with those art forms no you do not now i really it makes me want to get down into the boggy creek area more and we did a a screening of legend of boggy creek not too long ago at the coleman theater in miami oklahoma and what what are some of your takeaways from the film now the film is an artistic takes artistic license with aspects of it, but it also utilizes a number of, of people from the area. It was filmed on location in, in the Texarkana area. And what are, what are some of your takeaways on the film? The sense of place is conveyed. The sense of 
something being at your periphery that is a danger. Very well done. I really enjoyed that they used locals for small parts and extras that, and, and it did a very good job of illustrating how people are received when they have this very out of the ordinary experience. Everything from ridicule to almost ostracized, you know, being ostracized to you're crazy, all while you're dealing with something that you can't really explain. And it's done in a very, really human way that we, we get, I think we get desensitized with flashy movies with lots of CGI and effects and everything. And this was more more human. I would almost say a noir horror movie, although it didn't adhere to all the aspects of noir. And so that that sense of being immersed in a situation that does not seem to make sense, I think, is is what was left with me. Legend of Buggy Creek is, I believe, very much informed by a Southern Gothic soul. Yes. And it and it's in its substrate. There's a there's a scene in the film when the local hunters, um, the men of the community, are are gathering together. They've got their dogs, they've got their coon hounds, and they're they're getting ready to go see if they can find the the monster. And mm -hmm. the fact that it was filmed in the early '70s, it was very beautifully shot. The the scene to me is well let me wind back to just to, to re-emphasize or to emphasize something that you already said which i, I fully agree and, and hardly endorse typically in a in a modern film that would be a throwaway scene simply to heighten mm -hmm. uh, the, the the larger narrative but in in this scene it actually reminds me of the document the documentary footage that was filmed in Shannon County at about the same time of uh, and it and that's was a I believe a public television uh, documentary and the the footage is is available on YouTube in Shannon for Shannon County Missouri but there is a captured moment in time in these men in yeah. in their in their faces in their their dialect and their way of life, their way of moving in their in their dogs themselves. That is just extraordinarily beautiful. It it sticks with you, and it's something that is typically lost in today's action cinema or horror cinema or etc. Which is these moments in which the audience is allowed to simply exist within space and breathe for a moment before something happens. That's true. And I that that scene it does stick with you. The other one that that sits with me from that is actually one in which Charles B. Pierce is in himself. And that's when he's portraying a witness who witnessed the monster as a child. And he goes back to 
basically the shack that he grew up in and is sort of reliving this moment. And it's done in such a way that it it doesn't it doesn't stigmatize, it does not label, it does not, it's it's non-judgmental, I think is a good way of putting it, because it would be easy to make it judgmental of the place, the scene of poverty, of, of a, a place and time that was fading into the past even then. And it's done very respectfully. And I think that is telling of the art when you they were doing it on such a low budget, but it it conveys a dignity of humanity that so easily can be portrayed in a very disrespectful way. Which there are times when I'm watching modern media that it feels that there's a, a boilerplate, there's a, there's a template for how do you portray humanity or if they are rural and south of Chicago and east of Philadelphia and west of Reno, Nevada? And it is scary how easy it is to paint hundreds of millions of, of you know, spaces in, in one brush. And that is one of the, the beautiful things about this kind of properly done independent cinema and independent film that it really allows for that kind of heart to be explored and to be documented, really, even if it's fiction, it's still documenting an idea in a, a very respectful way. And, and I, you wouldn't necessarily anticipate that from a retelling of the legend of the Falk monster and the cryptozoology of, of Boggy Creek, but it's there and it's, it's well worth people's time. Legend of Boggy Creek 2 is a bit more troubled. Well, and, and Charles B. Pierce said the same thing. In fact, he ultimately said he regretted making that movie. He was pressured into doing so because of the success of the first movie. And at the same time, at the same time, a cult following has grown up around Legend of Boggy Creek 2 predominantly yeah. because it was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000, which for the record, before you and I started working together, before mm -hmm. I was before before I was heavily invested in the Ozarks, I actually watched Legend of Boggy Creek 2 on Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> it became one, probably one of my top 10 favorite episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000. And despite its flaws and despite its sometimes hysterically funny riffing, it also has some very beautiful documented moments. It does. And, and, and I think that goes, that, that says something about Charles Pierce. And, and I guess we should say too, that he was not just a local independent filmmaker. I mean, he, he had a very deep background in film in Hollywood and so he had the benefit of uh, I guess sort of the technical benefit of working in Hollywood 
and then applying it to subjects that he was interested in. And and he worked, not only was he a filmmaker himself, but he worked on a number of films and TV shows that were extremely well known. Yes. And, so, I mean, he was very, very proficient in what he did. <laughs> and really played with a lot of very interesting genres that were you know, that, that that have continued to impact American culture as a whole, as well as highlighting this region of the interior highlands region that includes the Ozarks and the Washita's. And I think that also, you know, it stands to reason that his film, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, in relationship to the Moonlight Murders of the Phantom Killer, is pivotal in its impact on the horror slasher genre. It really is, because it, it really comes in at the very beginning of that movement. And it, it really, I think it really did impact some of the later bigger budget slasher films. Have you seen it? I have not seen it. You have not seen it because uh, we've done, uh, through Paranormal Science Lab, we have done presentations in conjunction with Bookhouse Cinema of the movie. And I, I really, I really love the movie, to be perfectly honest. And I, I am, I am looking forward to, I'm looking forward to seeing it, in all honesty. And it's based on the the Texas Moonlight Murders, which took place over a 10-week period between February 22nd and May 3rd of 1946 in Texarkana, in the Texarkana area, Miller County, Arkansas, and Bowie County, Texas. I've got to check on my puppy for just a moment. Would our, our documentation is on page 17. Would you go ahead and let people kind of give them an, an overview of the case? And I will be back in just a moment. Okay. I think, first of all, you have to have the sense of time of this. This is immediately after the end of World War II. People are sort of getting back to normal routines and feeling more, I think, lighthearted is not exactly the right term, but back to normal. And so just shortly thereafter, there is a series of events that occurred between February 22nd and May 3rd of 1946, targeting couples, young couples, including lover, uh, lover's lane scenarios. And then uh, also at one at an isolated farmhouse. The attacks were nationally reported on. People started being fearful. They said they, the store sold out of guns and ammunition, locks, anything that they could do to protect themselves. Even some young people tried to lure the killer out to be ambushed in groups. There totally were four attacks. And, and they were all, I think the oldest victim was 25, and I think the youngest was about 18 or 19. So these are people who are should not be at risk. And I think that is part of the horror is that 
there, there seemed to be no rhyme nor reason as to why these particular victims were, were targeted. And the chilling part is that the, the individual doing this was never, never brought to justice. Never officially brought to justice, no. And, and that's, I think, why it ended up with the moniker of the phantom killer in large part because it was that unknown factor, which plays on fear, which is a, is a similar theme as to Legend of Boggy Creek. It's that unknown quality. You had victims that were shot dead in their car. You have some of the survivors, you know, making descriptions, but nothing that was detailed, really. And so the police were kind of at a loss, and that's that's part of the problem. But in the end, there is an idea of who might have been the the killer, although it, it is speculation because a small-time crook was arrested and then there were no other murders after that. But again, no one really knows. And I think, I, I think that is the, the thing that put people over the edge to, they, they really did. They basically locked down at sundown. Mm-hmm. Well, and especially in an era when people did not lock their doors. Right. This was a vastly different experience very suddenly. And of course, America has had an enormous amount of violence throughout its entire history. I mean, how we had, we had an entire war, speaking of local domestic violence. And in that regard, Something that I think is, I'm going to going to speculate for a moment, mm-hmm. but something that with, with some exceptions, war being one of them, that local, in many cases, particularly in rural America, local violence was, seemed to be extremely isolated to particular regions, particular times and space and time, while much of the rest of a region could go on about its way, scarcely aware of the violence that might be taking place in a highly localized area. Mm-hmm. And to a large degree, certainly not to a not to a fault, but to a large degree, large swaths of middle America were surprisingly peaceful, surprisingly pastoral, surprisingly safe in terms of living life free of this kind of expectation of this kind of violence. And the, the truth is that since the 80s, for a wide variety of reasons, most many cases based on perception, in some cases not, we have become a more vigilant society. We, we do things like lock our doors uh, when we get home. We lock our doors when we leave home, those, those types of things. And it is certainly for my, myself, I grew up with the idea that you lock your doors, even though I, I grew up in, again, in a very comparatively speaking, rural and pastoral and quote unquote safe environment. 
But my mom always made note of that because when they were, when she was growing up in rural Southern Iowa in the 1940s and 50s, they did not lock their doors. That was, that was something that had, you know, shifted. And of course, the stranger that in the very early 1970s, when my mom was home alone as a young woman with two little girls, the stranger who walked up on the front porch and tried to open her front door, but she had happened to have the screen door locked that morning, ensured that she always made sure that the front door was locked no matter what. Exactly. And this is one of those cases that kind of highlighted that because of sort of the fallout, because as this case is being investigated, several, there, there are several characters that come to light that all potentially could have been a killer, if nothing else, highlight those latent dangers that people were not thinking about at the time. Anything from, you know, an 18-year-old uh, university freshman, Henry Tennyson, who who killed himself with a cryptic note about three of them, uh, confessing to three of the murders, although they never could find any evidence linking him to the murders. Then there's a, a 21-year-old soldier, machine gunner, who have turned himself into the police in Los Angeles, claiming to have awoken from a fugue state of several weeks on the day of the Starts murder, one of the murders, with his rifle missing. And he heard that they were looking for a suspect that roughly matched his description, so he hitchhiked from the Tessarkana area to L.A., feeling like he was running for murder, even saying, I'm my own suspect. And they arrested him, but after interrogating him, they decided he, he, his story didn't make sense and indicated that he probably wasn't involved. And, and there's just several of these incidents, including one that was, a, that was announced that there was an escaped German prisoner of war they were looking for. I mean, all of these things just heighten that sense of fear. And looking back now, you think, boy, the this sounds like an 80s slasher movie. <laughs> and something else that, that, that comes to mind as, a, as we're reviewing this material is that lots of weird moments and weird things are constantly happening. And you don't, the, the mind does not innately put them together and say it must be connected all the way up until something like this happens. And then once you go on this high alert, it's very easy to begin drawing connective lines between all sorts of things and saying, oh, it must be proof that it's this. It must be proof that it's this person. It must be proof that it's that person. And in some cases, which I find very interesting, I'd be curious as your thoughts, just in terms of your, your experience with people in these types of situations. Individuals who in all probability had nothing to do with the crime, suddenly being exposed to the, the media coverage of it, being apparently in a very unique state and a unique frame of mind, and then coming forward, essentially saying, oh, I think I might, have, I might be the murderer. There, there are situations like that that happened in court cases. And I think sometimes it is a function of mental illness. 
sometimes it seems I've seen situations not quite to that extent, that dramatic extent, but people saying things that on the surface appear either crazy or appear to implicate themselves in something that turns out if you start digging comes out of some sort of being naive on something or just being almost too open with their internal monologue. I've seen a number of people end up accused of doing different things that were not socially adept at understanding that perhaps some of the things that they experience and, and wonder about, other people do too, but don't just carry on an open monologue about <laughs> things like that. So, but on the other hand, there are those who really do relish wanting to be sort of the big man, being important. And sometimes it comes out in very odd ways that basically getting their 15 minutes of fame. The, that, that does happen. The human mind is drastically more complex than we give it credit for. And, and there are times under certain social and biological conditions that it can get very weird in a great big hurry. Very much so. One thing that I noticed in, in this is that multiple suspects or people who initially were suspects and rolled out involved hitchhikers. And I think this is one of those very early situations where people started being wary of hitchhikers because they could be out in the middle of nowhere and then you end up with people dead in the park, that kind of thing. And then you fast forward literally five years and you have Billy Cook. Yes, you do. It's, it's an interesting milieu to say the least. It's something that jumped out at me in terms of the, the crimes, not exclusively, but the individuals who seem to have been targeted were young or comparatively young people who were romantically parked in discrete locations. Yes, all except for the, the young woman at the farmhouse, yes. And I'm, I'm not sure what to make of that aspect. For one, it, it sounds like a Horace Latcher cliche. You are, no matter what happens, you are perfectly safe as long as you don't go to a secluded space to make out. Yeah. <laughs> but again, what's the chicken and the egg? You know, I mean, it's a cliche now, but where did that cliche come from? And it could Perhaps. have started in Victor Cannon in 1946. Exactly. And then the movie that Charles B. Pierce made of it. And as I've not seen the movie yet, and you have, what, what are some of your takeaways of the film? It does a very good job of keeping suspense high, but there is not, there's not a lot of gratuitous violence, which 
you basically have the the atmosphere of a slasher film without the over-the-top gratuitous violence with it. Mm-hmm. Although it, the way it's filmed, the, the victims are, you really sense their vulnerability. That's done very well. That they suddenly are, are in a situation they can't control and are at the mercy of this person they can't see and, and is kind of depicted as wearing a mask. Then the scene at the farmhouse really sticks with me. It was so well done, the attack on the woman and her managing to get away. When you say it was a good good scene, you can't say it was a good scene for a low-budget film or, or anything like that. It was just extremely well done without being over-the-top or gratuitous that it it left you just kind of sitting there going wow and that you would hope that in that instance that you would hold up in that situation as well as she did mm-hmm. um my hat was off to pierce he did a, a really good job with it and i think it it speaks to the fact that in my opinion better done than that slasher films that came later that are so well known i think that's impressive i i want to see the film now yeah it's well worth it and and again with the with the disclaimer and caveat that this is entirely speculation at this point but what are your thoughts in terms of the potential perpetrator my guess is it was the mechanic he was, a, he was a small-time counterfeiter. He was arrested later. Sort of in, he, he was questioned about the, uh, some of the murders. He then was arrested on unrelated charges, I think on a burglary, and went to jail. And there were no other attacks. And there were... And I'm not sure if in this article, but I've read it before in researching it, that there were family members that later really suspected that he was the, the killer. Mm. And that is UL Swinney? Yes. Okay. That is... And, and I know that I've read accounts from a couple of the lead detectives on the case and they, they really that that was their conclusions they really felt that he was the the killer mm-hmm. to me the locations of the attacks suggest to me anyway at, at this very early juncture point of analysis of someone who would have been familiar with locations for example where young couples went to park or a farmhouse where a young man and woman were isolated, these types of things, that a, a an itinerant person might level violence against someone once, but it would be difficult to do it over and over in differing locations where you would have to know the the local community and the culture. Well, and, and that's one one of the detectives makes a statement basically to that effect is that the killer 
is able to basically come and go unseen and not be recognized that he was very familiar with the area and sort of the patterns of people coming and going. So someone that lived in the area and with a level of intelligence and cunning to do this and he fit that bill with his history. Mm -hmm. It's it's chilling really and it's it, it becomes a universal cautionary tale because it's something that could happen at any time. I mean, it could. I mean, something like that it could happen again. I mean, it's always easy to say, oh, that's in the past and we don't have to worry about it. But you just don't know because human nature is involved. It is. And, and, I, and I think that is the, the telling thing. And, and I think that is what's left to the audience that it makes the impression is that you can't pat yourself on the back and say there's nothing to worry about because that potential is out there and be aware of what's going on around you because of that. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, situational awareness is rarely a bad thing. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> mm. Now we have some really interesting legends associated with the Washita's. Yes, we do. Where do you want to start? Oh, I would say the lady in black. Okay. You, you can never go wrong starting with the lady in black. Well, at least it's not as cliche as the lady in white. That is true. That is true. And comparatively speaking, not as terrifying as what happened to Daniel Radcliffe and the film by the same name. <laughs> touche, touche. <laughs> For the record, I love the film, The Lady in Black. I deeply appreciate that they cast Daniel Radcliffe in it. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there's so many key moments in the film. I kept catching myself because I was going, dude, you're Harry Potter. You surely have a spell for this. <laughs> Is it like a mixed metaphor? Yes. <laughs> He's just in over his head and apparently suffering from amnesia because all of that, all those years at, at Hogwarts seems to be doing him no, no good whatsoever against the magic of the paranormal. There you go. He just didn't pay attention. That's what you get for using clip notes. I guess so. It's unfortunate. They should have sent Hermione. She would have handled that, that ghost like that. <laughs> what I do like, there, there's a, one thing I like about this Lady in Black story. Now, it takes place, you have a tragic love story, ghost and ghost story, and competing universities. Yes, with it's competing football. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of like Romeo and Juliet on the gridiron. It, it is. It really is. And there's, there's a couple of different versions of it as well. Yeah. Basically, you have... Washita Baptist University and Henderson University, cross town or Henderson State rather, cross town rivals, basically. In the 1920s. In the, in the 1920s. 1920s. And let's see, at Washita we have we have the the girl Jane. Yes, and her name stays the same across the story. 
Yes. It, well, I mean, his does too. He's Joshua yeah. on both. So they fall in love, but apparently she doesn't stack up to Henderson's standards. So, And he, he dumps her. He dumps her. And takes another girl to the homecoming dance. Now, this is where there, there's at least two different versions of the story. In one version of the story, Jane goes back to her dorm room, puts on a black dress and a veil, and walks to a cliff overlooking the Washita River and jumps to her death. Another version, 1927, has Jane going back to her room in Cone Bottoms dormitory, putting on a black dress and a veil, that is the, the commonality, before throwing herself down an elevator shaft. I don't know, throwing yourself off a cliff is, is a little more, you know, dramatic, but going down the elevator shaft certainly has the same effect in the end. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not the fall that hurts, it's the sudden stop. Yes. And as a result, she basically haunts the building that she lived in at school. Right. Which is the cone, cone bottoms. And let's see, that she is seen every year on the anniversary of that homecoming. And the idea that students report seeing a, a faint black figure, hearing moaning, feeling cold hands or sudden temperature drops. And apparently she's pretty harmless unless she finds out you're related to the girl who stole her boyfriend. Yes. And, and this tends to happen on homecoming every year. So that gives you a little different homecoming tradition. Now, it also functions, there, there's very strong urban legend aspects to this. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is, there's also the information that says that the lady in black actually began in 1912 following the tenure, this is quote, tenure of a Henderson student named Nell Page who was credited with creating the story. According to the original legend, the lady in black roamed the halls in the girls' dormitory, predicting who would win the Battle of the Ravine. If she wore black, it signified a victory for the Reddies. If clothed in white, a victory for Wafita was predicted. After Nell's death at an early age, the story goes that it was her ghost who walked the halls. So basically, it, it became specific to her because of her death. <laughs> yes. It is, to me, it's always, it's always interesting just because of the, the fact that we, we do have legitimate hauntings, a lot of legitimate hauntings in schools, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of hauntings associated with uh, severe trauma, particularly if resulting in suicide. We have hauntings, as we've already noted, noted in tonight's episode, with ghost places, hauntings associated, or hauntings, magic, and, and or poltergeist activity associated with attached objects. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this kind of lore has real documentation that can exist in real time, and we do investigations on this type of thing regularly in real time. We do. And we do. At, at the same time we also come across stories like this that that seem to have a very strong basis in uh, a folkloric or urban legend base yes and not only do you have a lot of those that surround school but 
also lends itself to a lot of the suicidal princess stories. <laughs> it does, which to a large degree is a, is an Anglo-American creation myth. That it is. Has, has a lot more to do with the romanticism of Western literature into the Americas than it has to do with the tribal Americans who are already here and probably not throwing themselves off of cliffs quite as regularly as the lore might suggest. No, ra rather doubtful, rather mm -hmm. doubtful. Now, opposed to that story that has the strong urban legend sense to it, you have something a little different with the tale of the ghost of Ridge Mountain. Mm-hmm, and you do, and you have a rural, a very rural mountain space, Rich Mountain Pioneer Cemetery mm -hmm. in Arkansas, specifically on the Talamana Drive just west of Queen Wilhelmina State Park in Arkansas. It's, it's not only is it a tragic story, it's a tale, but certainly a tale that very easily could be true. Yes. If, so it's the, the, the tragedy aspect of it is in a nutshell, is not unrealistic. And no, but yet it's it's pretty traumatic as well. It is. The story is set in Civil War, and these regional Arkansas families are doing their best to eke out a living on the, on the sides of the mountain. And this is also something very similar. Families during the war, both in Arkansas and Missouri, were typically stripped down to just the women and children, in many cases, or the elderly, because the men were all conscripted into yeah. fighting for the Confederacy or, or the Union. Right, or having been killed in one fashion or another. So they make the point, this is true, that some of the people at Rich Mountain may, may have been what the locals termed as mountain feds or basically union sympathizing Arkansans fleeing to the mountains to avoid conscription into the Confederate Army. Whereas in Southern Missouri, many of the union sympathizers tried to flee north or into Kansas and the Southerners headed to Texas, not stopping in Arkansas, ironically, typically, probably made more sense if you were trying to flee and not be conscripted to go to the mountains there rather than further away. And it really, there's, there's a couple of key things that, from a historical perspective, that are, are important takeaways. The, the first is that, again, state lines did not create monolithic people groups in agreement. Now, I think it's interesting, just last last episode, we were talking about individuals with strong Confederate sympathies, and sometimes militantly so, in Southern Illinois. And yeah. we, we don't even consider the, this many years hence, we don't even consider the possibility that Illinois of Illinois as a as a slave state. Illinois is the land of Lincoln. Illinois is a, a a centerpiece of the Union. And the idea that there in Little Egypt there was a 
notable contingent of Confederate sympathizers at that time. And yep. a, a lot of that, some of that had to do with economics, some of that had to do with, with ethics, but a lot of it had to do with just the people groups were involved predominantly and, and quite frankly, predominantly Celtic people groups, Celtic mountain people groups who were angry about being told what to do, whether they were on the right or wrong side of history. Exactly. And, and so that, that may have been the case here as well. Yes. And in this case, in, in something that is, that is particularly interesting just to add these layers and layers and layers of complexity into the, the situation that the United States found itself in and the 1860, the 1860s is that in the north, quote unquote, certainly in Missouri and I think southern Illinois, it would be fair to say, you have Confederate sympathizing individuals fighting against, in, in some cases, simply fighting against the larger authoritarian position of the Union. Mm -hmm. And it looks here that we have mountain folks fighting against the larger authoritarian position of the confederacy simply don't conscript don't conscript me right don't, and, don't force me to be a part of your war and, and there, there were a number of people who who felt that way regardless of their politics leaned one way or the other so and, and in know, this oh go ahead no i was just gonna say you know, that we see, and we see this in Missouri, individuals, for example, who very complex reasons and, and ethics involve individuals who own slaves, that slaves who were very much pro-union, individuals who did not participate in slavery whatsoever, that were very much pro-Confederacy. It's, it is very, it is layers of complexity and each layer of complexity is in and of itself extremely complex in terms of the sociological, political, ethical, and ancestral reasons for why someone would make the decisions that they did. Yeah, it, it's, and it's at times very hard to put yourself in that spot in, in a very authentic way, so. It uh, is. Now, coming back to the ghost story, Mm -hmm. The ghost story is chilling, literally and figuratively, in, in the sense that it is winter. There's a brutal, brutal winter storm that is, is covering the Washita's in ice and snow. And there is a, a mother on Rich Mountain with a, with a teenage daughter and several smaller children. Mm -hmm. No father is there. Perhaps he's been killed, perhaps he's away fighting the war, perhaps he was conscripted, perhaps he was, as happened with many bushwhackers in southern Missouri, he might be on the run because he doesn't want to get conscripted into either side. Right. And the, and the mother is severely ill with fever. The daughter, the family needs water, and the oldest daughter is a young teenage girl heads out into the storm and attempt to find the nearby spring and she is cornered by wolves. And I think that's something to note too that we, we don't think about now because we don't have a wolf population left 
but that was a very real danger. And there were, there were descriptions of that during the Civil War in the Ozarks as well. Mm-hmm. I, I know in Carthage, Missouri, there were uh, soldiers' diaries talking about late in the war, seeing you know, wolves openly walking the deserted streets. Yes, which is... And, mm-hmm. Which is hard to contemplate now. <laughs> it is, and when you when you add in, for example, the idea that not only could there have been packs of wolves patrolling, but in some cases, and after some battles, the bones that the wolves would have been fighting over would have been human. Exactly. So, I mean, it is very... It's 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 very conceivable that at least as part of the story could have happened that she's cornered by wolves, so she climbs a tree to get away. But again, it's in the middle of a bad winter storm and she freezes to death. Yes, and sometime later, her her corpse is found, mm-hmm. uh, and she is buried in that cemetery. Yes, on Rich Mountain. And she's been, people have said that they would see her spirit in the graveyard and that strange lights would often be seen in the trees. And we wouldn't know anything about those kind of things. So, <laughs> no, nothing at all. I want to I digress into this for a moment. There's certainly, cemetery lights in some cases is caused by, by gas. Uh, coming off of decaying organic matter. Right. In, in that kind of situation, human remains. And it would have been at that time, generally you don't have that anymore with bodies being embalmed, but that would happen. But there are times there are lights seen in cemeteries and places otherwise. Spook lights, ghost lights. I've seen free-floating light uh, floating through the trees at Peace Church Cemetery. I was going to ask, I, I thought I'd remember that. I've not actually been out to Easter Cemetery after dark. I've been there in the, in the, in the daylight hours. What, in your experience with, uh, with that grave light, what did it look like? What was, what was, tell me about it. Well, to be honest, it looks like spook light. <laughs> uh, it appeared to be probably the size, maybe of a soccer ball. Um, was I, wasn't quite as big as maybe a basketball, but you know, maybe eight inches roughly in a sphere. And it was a bluish white light that floated through the trees and was a, probably about 25 feet off the ground and floated along the, the tree line on the east side of the cemetery. And we observed it for probably close to a full minute. Mm. That's impressive because a lot of times the those types of lights are very fleeting. Yes, they can be. Now I've I've seen very similar phenomena in haunted buildings before, including the Kendrick House at Carthage. And there are times that, yeah, that they, they are there for a decent amount of time. And other times it's just you know, almost a blink of the eye. But 
yeah, it, it was visible for, I'd say, close to a minute. It, it just sort of floated in and around branches of the trees and just kind of went from north from the north end, um, rather the south end towards the north end. Mm. And until finally it was out of view. Now that bottom, that bottom lands mm -hmm. at Peaceburg has a really strong resonance for me. Well, yeah. Uh, now you're talking on the south side mm -hmm. and on the west across the road. That 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 creek bottom that's mm -hmm. down there with with all the uh all the fox grapes and the osage orange yeah that's uh that's turkey creek and uh, and actually that meanders on west to the private location that we <laughs> are investigating mm -hmm. mm. that's the same creek mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah that resonated really strongly with me even mm -hmm. the first time that I was there. And that creek goes across Joplin, too. Mm. Oh, wow. Where at? It goes towards uh, kind of uh, on sort of the north part of downtown on mm -hmm. uh, east, actually, over by Range Line. Okay. So it mm -hmm. goes pretty much clear across town. <laughs> It's a beautiful creek. It is. It is. And that's, um, we keep getting pulled back into the Joplin area on tonight's episode. Now, Legend of Forked Mountain. Mm -hmm. And this was, and perhaps a little cliche in terms of settler lore about Native Americans. Yeah, perhaps, although I don't know, it, it does make you wonder if, the, you know, there may be a grain of truth at some level with it that it is indicative of a lot of the other tales and this comes out a tribute to the quapaw now of course they were ultimately relocated to northeast oklahoma right and and i'm assuming that the sacred valley of vapors is what become becomes hot springs that's my understanding, and I've I've heard that term applied to that area. I have uh, too. Before. So I, I'm assuming that this kind of, that this particular one is in that area. And so basically, as you were mentioning before with the Cato in the Osage, this is a tale basically of interaction, and, and it may be a little more symbolic of a story about the interaction between the Quapaw and the Osage further north because you have the Quapaw maiden and you have the Osage warrior. Right, <clears throat> right, which is honestly is certainly just in terms of archetypal comparisons is fair because you do have two, two competing tribal spaces. Right, and they certainly would have come into contact with each other. So it it, and, it does have that ring of truth there of, of some sort. So in in short, spoiler alert, the Nkwapa girl and the Osage boy fall in love with each other against the wishes of the Kwapa girl's dad. Yes, there's a pattern. <laughs> yes. 
Yes, yes, it is. And boy and girl attempt to flee, and they manage to make it up on top of a mountain in the water hog. And the girl's dad and tribe is clan is uh, chasing them and they are about to be captured and there is a lightning bolt that splits the mountain at its summit and the two lovers simply are never seen again right so sort of wanting you know uh that cautionary tale of be careful what you wish for you may you may get it because this the father had wished to separate them and instead he loses his daughter as well he does does. which is you know there's it's very difficult to sort out from whence that particular legend arose but it is very beautiful and it is very poetic it definitely is. I found it interesting. What, what did you make of the, the lore of the Lost Elves? I am, well, I am never not intrigued by Forest Elm. And what we're, what we're dealing with is folklore uh, associated with the Caddo. The Caddo have extraordinarily, extraordinarily rich folkloric tradition and cosmology. It, it, I think that it's fair to say that it goes beyond folklore. It, mm-hmm. it, it, it definitely within the larger sense of cosmology. For people who are not familiar, of course, the Caddo Nation is, is currently in, you know, headquartered in Oklahoma because it was former Indian Territory. And the, the, the Caddo, originally the Caddo Confederacy was a network of tribal people associated with the southeastern woodlands or the the southeastern woodland people and mississippian culture so it also and i think it it bears a little bit of discussion the caddo peoples are traditionally associated with as mound builders Mm -hmm. bureau mounds are in in the ozarks are associated with with the caddo as well as a number of earthenwork mounds and i find that really fascinating again we've talked about places like cahokia and this is this is a very ancient civilization. This is a very ancient culture that that utilizes mounds in this particular way. Even connected to the Western Ozarks at Golden City in Lawrence County, Missouri, the uh, the Golden and Golden City was that grove of trees where there were evidence of ancient diggings, and so early settlers assume the Indians were mining there or the Spanish and there were trace amounts of gold but what they discovered when they started doing an archaeological study on it is that what was being mined was part of the bedrock it was a very particular strata which is very is unique to that location and they found that bedrock in in Cahokia, Sphero, and other mounds for hundreds of miles away. And they don't know what was so special about it or why they wanted that rock, but it's so very interconnected with the Ozarks 
all around. I love that. I love that. I, I, that, that reminds me of something. I want to go off on a tangent for a moment and we'll get back to the elf. That some time ago, I had the opportunity to teach a class on Irish history. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in doing the research for that class, it was something really fascinating because, of course, we associate Irish history with the Celts. Yeah. But we also know that there was a currently unnamed Neolithic people who were in Ireland before the Celts. Right. And we, we assume that the unnamed people had, the, in some way, their culture or the interaction of the Celts with this culture informed aspects of Celtic mythology in, in relationship to Ireland specifically. But again, thanks to those charming dioramas in various natural history museums, we assume that anything that took place before the Renaissance is practically prehistoric man. Or more specifically, that the term prehistoric man is the equivalent of Neanderthal. Yeah. And it was very fascinating to me because based on archaeological study, archaeological research in Ireland, it was it has been very clearly determined that the Neolithic peoples of, of Ireland maintained an extremely sophisticated series of land and sea trade routes, that they were mining copper, they were mining tin, they were, they were basically creating functional civilization that was quite sophisticated, and they were trading and selling to continental Europe and to, to modern-day Britain mm-hmm. uh, on a, at, a, at an industrial pace as well as having extraordinarily sophisticated religious sites, which, oh, wait, they're all still there. The, these great hinges, uh, Stonehenge is, is one of them. I realize that's not in Ireland, but it's the same Neolithic people group from what we can tell. Again, doing extensive and sophisticated pre-industrial mining in Cornwall and in Wales and, uh, and in Ireland, etc., and it was just very eye-opening and very humbling. It made me feel actually quite small. We we tend to have an over-exaggerated sense of self with our industry and realize yeah. that, that 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years ago, there were extensive peoples, extensive cultures, we don't even know their names, doing things that were extraordinary and very complex and very human. Uh, ex- exceptionally human in all that is good about that and all that is bad about that in places. And fortunately, they left mounds and hills and celestial signs to let us know that they were there. Otherwise, we would be oblivious to it, to our poverty. Mm-hmm. And that really reminds me of, of these Mississippian cultures here, mm-hmm. the Neolithic cultures. And we call them prehistoric because they are before our written history. But unfortunately, our minds associate prehistoric with subhuman. Yes, more primitive in nature. That Mm. really is a misnomer. I dare your average person on the street today to go out and put together a earthenwork city but oh wait 
it does need to be aligned with the sun and the moon and there needs to be at least one religious mound rectangular mound that is aligned with traversing path of venus right and and find a particular rock that is unique to one location and transport it three or four hundred miles yes in, uh, in various directions <laughs> yes yes and without without any of our modern the the luxury of any of our modern tools yes or the wheel apparently yes you can tell so so along those lines uh the caddo but the lost elves lore of the caddo they're also known as the lost people in the thickets mm -hmm. they are are at times thought of as little people at times thought of as ghosts I, I find that particularly interesting. And, and we see that often where there's a, a great deal of ambiguity associated with the category of the being. Yeah. And specifically, this is from uh, native-languages.org in Caddo Folk Traditions. The Lost Elves are ghostly nocturnal creatures who haunt thickets and wilderness areas. They're the size of children and live inside hollow trees. Okay, at that point, that is creepy as all get out. <laughs> right next to your bridge troll <laughs> actually i think this makes the bridge troll look like shrek people who become locked in the wilderness may be turned into elves not, not only are you just going to be lost you're going to become one yes now again we we see an, an interesting point of comparison this is not that much you know this is not terribly far removed from some aspects of Celtic tradition. It is not. It also is making me remember earlier in the episode when we were talking about ghost places and the in the standing chimneys, that perhaps the lost elves were what are around the chimneys, which of course, if they live in trees, chimneys may be analogous. That is a really good point. And we do seem to, just in terms of an investigative side, we do seem to see spiritual entities of a variety of kinds being attracted to forms. Mm -hmm. We, I'm reminded, of, for our, in, in terms of our own research, at Yield English Inn, we have the ghost of a little girl who haunts the second and third floors. But yeah. we don't have any evidence of a little girl passing in the hotel. Right. Or specifically, even very close not even something that did she pass in a building nearby there's nothing that we can point to mm -hmm. it's very so, so one of our speculations is that this particular spirit saw the hotel and was attracted to the form yes and and, uh, and that may and that may well be so the, this it is interesting to speculate that the lost elves of the caddo may be attracted to the chimney I don't know. It's just it just came to mind. I think that perhaps that, it, it explains it a little bit. And for people who wonder, you know, that a great a great deal of research, investigative research, analysis is done by us doing this kind of thing, where we feel our way through, come up with a variety of potential ideas, and then and try to investigate bring, it. Yeah, do our best to investigate it. In that in that regard, and based on our our time, and based on the amount of information that we have. My, my thoughts is we actually have enough material 
tonight for an entire additional episode with just a little bit, especially dealing with hot springs. Yeah. We do have the journal article of medical tourism in the backcountry, alternative health and healing in the Arkansas Ozarks, which deals with hot springs and Eureka Springs. Mm-hmm. My my thoughts for tonight's episode is dig into this particular uh, journal issue and then plan for a part two with the, with the rest of the material. That's fine. I'm really excited to do more research on the Wachita's. Me too. It's, it's very fascinating. And extraordinarily beautiful. And then just one of the reasons that I, one of several reasons I wanted to make sure that we did get to this alternative health and healing in the Arkansas Ozarks, which is also the Arkansas Wachita's because it covers hot springs, is drawing that sometimes mystical, sometimes esoteric line between the Wachita's and the Ozarks with that connective line between the conceptual line between hot springs and Eureka Springs and the idea that they're they're both healing springs with a very long American history. I like that. In unfortunately in both cases, Eureka Springs and Hot Springs have managed to pivot to continue to be extremely successful at mm-hmm. maintaining tourism, even after the the original reasons for their tourism had become in, in the case of, of popular consciousness, obsolescent, because something happened in the by the mid-20th century that was called antibiotics. And the the obviated the need for some of some of the <laughs> respites. <laughs> yes. But it's you know the the it's it's easy to overlook. We, there, there were a number of huge number actually of, of springs in the Ozarks and apparently also in the Washington certainly at hot springs that were associated with healing and health mm-hmm. it, it really is it's essentially its own folk practice strata of tourism i mean it is and, and there, there's a handful of places elsewhere in the country that fall into that category but those two are very prominent and it, it really goes back to the Native Americans that they viewed these springs as healing and would camp there to rest if injured or ill to gain their health back. And while when settlers came in, there, there, there were tensions on a, a lot of levels between the two cultures, but that is something that they shared, that they recognized as having the same utility. It did. And there's a, on, in this particular article, I should quote the provenance of the article, uh, Medical Tourism in the Backcountry, Alternative Health and Healing in the Arkansas Ozarks by Justin N. Nolan and Mary Jo Snyder from Signs, Winter 2011. And this is on page, looks like 321. That a couple a couple of points. One, the scarcity of modern healthcare in Arkansas has fostered a rich folk medical tradition in the rural Ozarks and Wachita's, forming the basis for several contemporary CAM beliefs. I, I think that it's it, to me it's really interesting. I am a huge fan of this entire essentially subculture of self care. 
I'm very much an advocate of natural remedies when they work and resorting to antibiotics, etc. <laughs> it really absolutely <laughs> necessary. And, you know, there's, there's been you know, sort of my uh, full disclaimer, anything that we do or do not say is totally unrelated. We're, we're not making any medical advice claims whatsoever on any of this. Seek yes. a qualified healthcare professional for all of your medical needs. As I said, the definition of folk medicine from within this article, and this is on the previous page of 320, historically rooted, commonly shared, and widely practiced beliefs that are learned informally and through direct experience as well as alternative medicine, which is historically diverse and esoteric practices performed by trained experts who work outside the politically dominant healthcare system. Folk medicine includes herbal remedies, household cures, hexes, superstitions, and conjuring. Alternative medicine includes chiropractic, acupuncture, homeopathy, crystal therapy, reflexology, and napropathy. I don't know that one. Napropathy. Napropathy. I'm not familiar with the term either. You know, and, and again, the these types of decisions and things, sometimes it's just a folk interest and sometimes it's a personal practice and, you know, it's up to the individual. There's been a number of times that I've been very grateful for antibiotics. Then the rest of the time, my goal is just to make sure that everything else I do ensures that I don't need antibiotics that often. Agreed. That's pretty much my view on those things. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, there's one, one thing that I came to, came to an, an interesting arrival at several episodes back when we were talking about healing springs earlier, is that we do not take into account, certainly in the, the 19th century and the early 20th century, individuals, for example, in the summertime, in large urban areas did not have the kind of access to clean water that we take for granted. That's, that is fact. And there were a lot of waterborne diseases, typhoid, et cetera, that were epidemic throughout the 1800s and early 1900s. Then on the other hand, I think something that we're probably more aware of now than even when these practices were at their height in the late 1800s is that a lot of these springs are naturally rich in minerals that most water sources are not and particularly treated water through cities which of course has helped to eradicate a lot of illness but by the same token can leave water minerals than it would have otherwise and I always I always think growing up at the farm people coming of visiting or commenting on how good the water tastes from the well and periodically of course had the water would be tested and so forth and what we knew was it was high in mineral content right and right. I know my, my mother always joked that she credited the water and her daily oatmeal with her unusually good health. Yes. So, <laughs> so you know, uh, it's easy to say that it's just full practice and 
something basically for taking the waters was basically just recreational, but in a very real sense, there there could be a health benefit that people would not have seen otherwise, particularly say in hot springs and Eureka Springs as well as the tourist area, but hot springs in particular, a lot of the tourists came from northern large cities. And so the the quality of the water would be something that would be very noticeable. And ironically, our postmodern society still kind of exalts this idea with our bottled spring water and actually one of the biggest ones still comes from hot springs it does it does <laughs> on some level our comparatively recent ancestral memory is telling us that we really do need to drink that water even if we're not sure of its provenance and it comes in a plastic bottle well we'll, we'll, we'll take those uh, polycarbon chains <laughs> along with the water there was, this is on uh, page 324, and this might be a point to, to conclude for tonight, but an interesting quote, the Wachita Mountains of Western Arkansas are home to the only significant vein of high quality quartz crystals in North America. Crystals have piezoelectric or vibratory qualities, properties, and many people report feeling positive vibrations from them. Crystals also have a long history in lithotherapy, the use of stones in folk medical treatment and are believed to be effective sources of vitality, balance, and emotional well-being. But crystal therapy in the region is also spurred by the arrival of participants in the Back to the Land movement who settled in Arkansas and began promoting crystals as a means of well-being. Yes, and you can still dig crystals as well as dig diamonds at Crater State Park. I have my... One of my earliest memories of, of the Ozarks being four years old and getting my first Arkansas diamond in Arkansas. <laughs> and uh, very cool. One of one of my most prized possessions, although it I think cost my mom less than four bucks. <laughs> and uh, I'm very proud hey, of the fact that four bucks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and I still have it along with now growing number of other quartz crystals to keep it company there you go and uh, yeah I, I tend to collect them as well somewhere at farm there's a large rose quartz crystal that actually there's there's a large vein through the tri-state mining district so there's mm -hmm. lots of quartz through here that the sidewalk at, at our farm lined with rocks and several of them are crystal so that's beautiful Definitely always something I uh, was always familiar, but uh, I don't know, just felt better having them there. Can't explain why. <laughs> absolutely. But that, absolutely. But that might be a good place to end tonight. And we thank everybody. And we want to remind you not to forget to check for upcoming events and merchandise at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. Thank you again to Always Buying Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping to bring the Dark Ozarks to everyone. On the next episode, we are going to be discussing the dark history of the Lake of the Ozarks in central Missouri. Catch the Dark Ozarks podcast on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or about any other podcast platform. Thank you, everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks. <laughs>